0: Welcome to episode 20 of IOT on Tap with Randy Pitcher, Mike Sturm, and Chris Herrera. So, boys, what are we drinking today?
1: Today, uh, we decided to go with uh, kind of a smorgasbord, kind of a separation of beers where we would typically have the same one. And Today, I have Storm Chaser. This is a Belgian beer, and it's got a, an ale kind of based blueberry and coffee flavoring to it. And I find it to be really lovely. It's a challenging flavor because as an ale, it's quite hoppy, kind of bitter, uh, but the blueberries, you know, as a fruit kind of backup, it makes it really drinkable. Uh, this is something I could see drinking on a Saturday afternoon and really just enjoying. And uh, I'm enjoying it today on a Friday afternoon.
2: Nice. Mike? So I've got the Lagunitas Imperial Stout. And um, it's really what I would consider to be sort of a, you know, prototypical stout where it's, uh, it's just really that dense, solid flavor. It's got a really excellent mouthfeel. It's smooth, well-flavored so i'm drinking old
0: engine oil the engineers reserve it's a malt chocolatey yeah,
1: ale it's inky black man it looks it like is, oil
0: it is a heavy 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 drink and it's it's nice today is a, a rather chilly day in houston yeah. i definitely wouldn't drink this in the summer unless sure. you wanted to roast yourself but for today it's quite good and it goes along with our topic which is snowflake database yeah What is Snowflake? Snowflake is a data warehouse on the cloud. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about collecting data, how you get it from the edge, how you process it on the edge, how do you get this data back in. We haven't talked a lot about... What you do with it. Yeah, what you, value. Yeah. How do you make value out of it? This is one of the first technologies that I feel makes this accessible. So Randy, I was wondering if you could take us like bite size, cliff notes, what is Snowflake?
1: Yeah. So if you're you're coming from maybe a more traditional background and you're wondering what is Snowflake? Snowflake is one of these first data warehouse options that were born of the cloud. So the cloud developed in 2005 and kind of really got mature in 2009, 2010. And we're enjoying a lot of the fruits of the cloud labor. And from these developments, this idea that you shouldn't have to just buy things up front, that you should pay as you go, that you should always have the most update things, um, is Snowflake. And Snowflake is a data warehouse born of both AWS and Azure first, not currently on Google Cloud Platform that allows you to take uh, the hard parts of a data warehouse strategy where you would maybe wonder, you know, what's our peak demand? What are our our tables going to look like? Uh, What things are we going to optimize for? And you push those to a service provider, uh, which would be Snowflake in this instance. And you just focus on the business value. So it allows you to decide on shirt T shirt sizes of computational power uh, in the cloud that scale with your usage and let you uh, not have to decide up front what your actual maximum capacity is.
0: So, that's a very good point. So, to take you through uh, kind of your standard planning Mm. procedure, typically what uh, a database manager, data architect would do is they would go through, they would look at their max, they would look at their max. capacity yeah and it would would just be 2x above that and that's what you would have all the time you pay for it all the time you have this compute all the time
1: you pay for the licenses you pay pay for the machines yeah absolutely but
0: even more than that let's say this this concept of coupling the data and the compute yeah so let's say i don't have a lot of data but i have a whole lot of compute i still have to add nodes that contain both data and compute that's the the standard uh hive model right yeah where you you've got to have the data resident with a compute on each node. So if I just wanted to scale out the compute, I would now have to add more storage, even though I didn't need it yeah. and vice versa. If I needed more storage space, I'd have to add more compute, even if I didn't need it. So you end up with these kind of wasted resources where you really don't need them. Yeah. And one of the nice things that you mentioned was that you've now separated. You've got the data and the compute. And uh, just to kind of put it into Snowflake terms, because it does confuse people, the compute is a warehouse. So the way that Snowflake terms it, you have multiple warehouses, Mm. which are actually just compute nodes, compute areas, clusters, and you choose the t-shirt size that's going to allow you to access the data below it. And those things scale independently.
1: And by having that fully integrated, um, things that people really confuse a lot, they confuse their data science needs uh, for, like, development of models or for ana- analytics development with their actual production uh, analytics delivering. Uh, and they decide, well, you know, the, the data scientists need these GPU clusters and they need tons of compute and it needs to be pretty high latency. Um, so we should make sure that we have that for everything, even the production people, which really all they need is maybe high memory and really intelligent caching. Uh, and by, by focusing on your data warehouse needs to the context of Snowflake, Uh, where your data warehouse is on the cloud and you do really separate the storage from the compute you can do right for purpose spending just for what you need so you're not spending for compute that's totally wasted
0: that's right and you can scale that up down turn it on turn it off as as needed and that's that's really one of the main pieces to it but the other side of it is for your traditional kind of on-premise whether it's mpp teradata type things whether it's hive whether it's even like
1: Microsoft SQL or right. Oracle, if you're doing one of those things, SAP.
0: Exactly. When you look at those, you have to have a DBA. You have to have somebody who's making sure that the disks are healthy. You have to make sure you have somebody looking at the indexes. You have to make sure making that make sure that the clustering's okay. You're probably doing a waterfall
1: okay. approach as well because it's just really hard to get the spend on these pretty high cost uh, resources ahead of time before you actually really have users using it you have That's to spend right. before you use
0: so when you look at doing a true total cost of ownership for kind of your on-premise solution a lot of people forget a lot of the elements that go along with this yeah and let's be honest sometimes that does reduce a little bit of flexibility uh, the flexibility I should say mm-hmm. when you go to snowflake because they're going to automatically do the the clustering keys for you they're going to automatically kind of decide how to partition your data for you and they're going to take a lot of the stuff which to be honest for most of the use cases that we come across yeah is totally fine yep so mike you as a i would call you very highly technically literate from a business point of view Yep. you were able to jump into snowflake in i mean minutes after us showing you basically how to use it
2: yeah. I mean, it was, I found it to be fairly simple because it related to the way I use the data. I take some data, it's in a table or maybe it's in a, uh, you know, just a single column and it relates to some of the way I see the data, the way I interact with it. I look at the uh, CSV file and I know I put it in and it essentially ends up like that and I can play with it and it's fairly straightforward. So You know, my background is really from a technical perspective, I'm sort of an Excel master, but I'm not a database guy in general. But that's sort of the skill set because I don't have to worry about, you know, clusters and tables and all the rest of that stuff. It just goes in and if I wanna add a column, it's very Excel-like in the way it feels and the way I interact with the data. So it was pretty straightforward. And then, you know, hooking up to something like Tableau on the other end, I don't have to know the secret sauce. There's a Tableau connector. I say, turn this on right use this plugin connect in and now the data is available and i can visualize and so yeah it was i found it to be really simple and it didn't really take any specific knowledge and i didn't have to ask chris 28 questions to get there
1: you guys were exploring to get and this is the part that was really eye opening for me is that you went so quickly from you know what if we made use of this data to making decisions on the data or curiously exploring it without an expensive data scientist or a python master i mean you guys were using sql on top of this Snowflake machine, and you were just, to make your queries come back while you're asking questions, you just used maybe a medium or large size t-shirt size just for the times you were using it. You didn't invest in like insane infrastructure to make this work. And you guys were asking real questions about the underlying data that led to something valuable that you could productionize really quickly in a matter of hours just sitting next to each other. It was really powerful to see. And
0: so one of the things I want to point out is that SQL is a descriptive language. A lot of people... You know, they get sad when they hear about SQL. They think, oh, that's the old days. That's, you know, it's all about no NoSQL now, and that's really where it's at. Yeah. Uh, this is an accessible way to get to your data. <clears throat> you don't necessarily have to hit a thrift endpoint yeah. or some sort of GraphQL endpoint to try to access your data. This is SQL, where you can join in a relatively natural language, where you can group in a relatively natural language. So... When Mike or I go in to look at the data, it's a lot easier to, for example, for me to onboard a Mike into this system because he can just start asking questions in a relatively easy to pick up natural language. Because if you have the domain these things almost write
1: themselves. Exactly. That was, you didn't need to waste time on really expensive technical resources because the hard, hard part is commodity and snowflake makes it really easy to consume. So the subject matter expertise, the things that really make money were really easy to extract and combine with real world production level workflows.
2: And from a, from a practical sense, unlike other systems I've worked in previously, where if I want to get in, dig around the data, I sometimes do things that are larger. I, I, and with this, I'm in my space. I have my compute resources. I control my cost. I have sort of my controls around the snowflake side because I was working on the free credits and I didn't want to burn that up. Yeah, we capped you pretty. Yeah. But fundamentally, I didn't have to worry about Chris is doing his thing. Everybody else was doing their thing. And I didn't have to worry about overlapping or, well, Chris is going to run a report so I can't do anything for the next hour because I don't want to jeopardize that. I mean, it, it freed I, you know, Okay, we were in training. I didn't really have those concerns. But fundamentally, I could see where You know, I no longer have to wait to run my big report that I want to run until Friday night when everybody else goes home, and I'm only going to get it once a week on Monday. I can now do some things without having to, uh, you had your own compute because the
1: storage is separate from the compute, and the production stuff has their own dedicated compute that you're not going to infringe on, and you can still do your exploration. I I, having worked with uh, a number of different more traditional systems, and then also more kind of the open source, uh, maybe like a hive approach. The amount of work that goes into gets, getting something productive and insightful in Snowflake is dramatically less. I mean, your lead time, once you decide it, it's something you want to use, you put yourself a budget. I mean, you could be analyzing things the same day.
0: So I do want to kind of box the capabilities a little bit because a lot of people do tend to overreach when it comes to what what is Snowflake. Sure. So Snowflake is not Spark. It's not Databricks. It's not Kafka. It's not Kinesis. It's not any of those things. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's it, not an IoT It's time not an based. IoT time-based. Yep. It can hold IoT data, sure. You can do it's good analysis. It's yeah. a it's a great starting point for really picking apart and seeing what's useful there. But it's 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 a data warehouse. It's a true data warehouse and I I'm I'm quite happy to see that it is a tool that does its job well for 90% of the use cases you throw at it. So let's talk a little bit about loading data into the system. Sure. Understanding that it is a data warehouse. It is not a Databricks. It is not a Kafka. It is not an NiFi. What is the mechanism by which we get data into it? So there's a couple of different ways. Um, the big, one of the largest ones is creating a stage. Sure. So there's two types of stages. There's an internal stage, which is snowflake managed. That's if you. So this is more for the guys who don't have already an aws account a subscription or an azure subscription these are guys who are just using snowflake as a warehouse you can forget the fact that it's on a cloud and use a snowflake stage an internal stage and load the data from that stage it's it's leveraging the underlying uh, cloud provider object store yeah but you won't be billed by aws or azure it's going to show up in your snowflake bill Now, the other side of that is an external stage. Yeah. And so if you are leveraging S3, if you are leveraging ADLS, you can create an external stage by which it will go pick up that data. So we're talking CSV... Avro, JSON. JSON. And we'll talk a little bit more about JSON and kind of the interesting things that you can do around that.
1: But, I mean, these are files. So if you're familiar with Hive, how everything's really just a SQL layer on top of files, this is really similar when you're discussing stages, that you're just trying to get file-level data into a place that, snowflake can suck up and then maybe consume and use for other compute resources right
0: but to be clear it is going to suck that data. it's not going to operate on the data that's resident in your yeah, external stage exactly. it's going to suck that in and then you it's going to operate on the data that it holds within itself so that's that's another thing um it's not like if you have the data in that external stage they're not going to charge you for the storage yeah. and really the 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 actual cost for storing the data is not that much more than just s3 all by itself it's not very expensive yeah. to leverage just storing data in snowflake and also the compression that they natively do you can't store unencrypted or uncompressed data in snowflake they're going to do that for you automatically and that just happens when you do the the copy command yeah from that external stage so um those those are kind of the main ways you get it in there's also snow sequel so so that's their cli um that you're able to to access Snowflake with, and then you have Snowpipe. Yeah. So one of the main differences between Snowpipe and the copy command, again, the copy command is what you use to kind of copy from that external stage, is that it's an automated data load. So the copy command runs as a transaction. It runs as a part of a transaction, I should say, that is going to pull data from that external stage, and then it's going to do something with that, right? And that's going to be a one-time event whenever you ran that that query. Snowpipe however is a automated data loading service essentially. And it's got a rest endpoint that is going to actually execute that that copy. And instead of using kind of the username password that the that the copy command was going to use, it's going to use a JWT so you get the advantage of not having to exp- expose your password.
1: This this is something that I often have frustration with um not frustration but disappointment that When comparing some of these cloud services, people will just do a a straight comparison with if you take some X amount of resources and you have them on-prem, just the resources versus the 24 seven cost of running them in the cloud you're almost always going to see that the on-prem is cheaper, but you're neglecting a full total cost of ownership, a TCO analysis where you're trying to understand what's the cost of your startup time. It could take weeks of lead time to get to that point. Your licensing the resources that you have to onboard some sort of consultants or support staff from your platform provider. Um, and then how do licenses change over time? I think anyone using some sort of Oracle maybe JDK version in the last couple months have been worried that, you know, that seems like a good idea now, but if prices change or if it's not really free, that can change your decision-making. Um, they're not doing a full analysis of what this actual cost is. They they're equitable, even if you don't do a full TCO, but when you do a TCO, it's almost mind numbing how much easier snowflake is on the wallet.
2: Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of this in fact, uh, you know, coming from sort of the traditional mindset, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, planning and uh, planning for capacity. And so people oftentimes think, well, I'm good. I need this, but I need to make sure I have this flexibility or I need that has this time. Okay. If I want to change, it's going to take six months. But when you talk about things around say snowflake and some of these things we're doing, these are not huge. These are not weeks and weeks or a month or two months worth of work. This is a couple of days worth of work to change. Yeah. So I think a lot of this also is, in terms of how easy, and so we talk about this is something that just in the last week or so, I must have had this discussion with five or six different people, including some clients about, you know, the Kiss principle, keeping it simple until you can't. And in the old days, well, starting simple and then had to rework it had a huge cost. So yeah. if you knew you couldn't stay simple, you immediately went complex to avoid the rework. But nowadays, when rework is a week or less, um, there's really a lot of value in not. Overreaching. Yeah, but I,
0: I, don't wanna, I don't want to oversimplify a migration, right? A sure. migration is a complex event. It's not something that you generally are going to do in a, a week or two weeks, right? It's going to be something that's done over time. So when you look at doing something like this, quite honestly, this is where, and we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast, the laggards who are just getting into this kind of data warehousing mentality, breaking down the silos, that type of thing. They're actually going to benefit from this, right? They don't have that legacy infrastructure of, okay, well, we spent X million dollars on this other warehouse. We have this gigantic Teradata instance. We have this Netezza instance. They don't have the legacy pain, right? If you are starting right now, you really, that's where you really have to ask that question. Why, what is the compelling reason that I need to do this myself versus using something like Snowflake to actually do this? But getting uh, getting back on the loading side of things, yep. again, realizing that this is a warehouse, it's not, aside from SnowPipe, it's not really going to do the, the job of loading that data for you. you you're still going to need your traditional kind of ETL loading tools, whether that's Attunity, HVR, something like 5Trans, something like Aluma yep. for kind of the more SaaS-based approaches. Yeah, if you want
1: a batch or if you want event-based kind of loading of, uh, of data as it arrives, this these are still tools that you need from the source.
0: Right and we had this discussion earlier randy let's say that you're already a deep aws shop right and you're using kinesis already and you've got a fire hose set up to s3 and you've got Snowpipe. you can automate that whole thing just right like that and not have to deal with it anymore so honestly when you're looking at integrating this into your current environment where you're trying to get data from these different databases it it works it works quite well in conjunction with a lot of other products, and they've done a, I would say, very good job at integrating with these partners, whether it is Attunity, for whether sure. it is Fivetran, whether it is Aluma, to make sure that it is a very frictionless process of getting your data in.
1: It's also not undoable. Like if you get into Snowflake and you think, man, I got an on-prem cluster. We went into Snowflake to do a little exploration. Wanted to play with Databricks. We wanted something that could grow. And we found out that all we're doing is commodity stuff. Stuff we could do on our on-prem cluster. There's nothing stopping you. I mean, you spend a little bit of money to pay as you use, but you're not. That sunk cost is not there the way it would be for like an on-prem Hadoop cluster. You can always go back. This is a fantastic place to do experimentation.
0: So I completely agree with that. If you're if you're looking at a situation where maybe you've already done that investment in a, in a large Hive, you know, HBase installation, and you maybe don't want to spend the time or the resources or the maintenance cost yeah. to really expand that cluster, but you really want to give your users access to the data that you've curated. Maybe you've got a nice data governance, data organization that you've created there. There's nothing saying that I can't have, for example, an Intunity Replicate that's just going to mirror the data essentially on Snowflake and have my other users access it via Tableau, Power BI, and, something like and that. And Those
1: are some of my most favorite use cases is the hybrid approach. People already invested in those on-prem clusters, they bought the licenses, they're going to be there for a little while, at least until they need to upgrade. How do they not just waste that on-prem use, use case but still get the advantages of the cloud? They're, they're curious about Lambda, they're maybe curious about integration with Databricks and Databricks doesn't have an on-prem offering. They're using maybe Zeppelin right now or Um, Jupiter, Uh, being able to use just for your top tables, the tables that had most of the uh, transformations already done and they're ready for analysis, just pop those in really cheaply to Snowflake is a great approach to find out if the cloud is worth the investment for you.
0: It does unlock a lot of other use cases that would otherwise be probably monetarily very difficult to sell. You have to make a decision, a commitment. Right. Yeah. And it lets you, yeah, exactly like you said, play around. One of the key features I do like to point out, because I have done this a couple of times, is time travel. Oh, my
1: gosh, yes, a total godsend.
0: So anybody who's ever dealt with databases at all, realize how how close you are. Every second to an erroneous truncate command doing something that you didn't want to (laughs) do.
1: Please, everyone listening, if you've deleted production data on accident... Uh, that could not be recovered. Please raise your hand right now. Yeah. I'm raising my hand for my sure. Hand's definitely up. I've done that. Um, so time travel being the ability to though though it's not a time series store, you do have some time aware operations. You can see after a change in ETL processing, uh, the before and after on your data. Or if you've done a delete, you can undo. Which is the best part of Excel and is the best part of Snowflake in many ways.
0: It is configurable. So you can set it to, I think by, by default it's 24 hours. I'm not 100% certain, but I'm pretty sure that that's right. Yeah. Um, so being able to go back in time and see, you know, what did this look like before, what operation has occurred, maybe an erroneous ETL job, something like that has occurred, being able to go back. But in conjunction with this, um, another cool command is clone. Yeah. So to, to dive a little deeper into Snowflake, the actual data is resident on the object store, either ADLS or S3. So cloning the data is what they call a zero-copy clone. It's actually just forking off the access and using versioning to, figure, to give you access to that data at that point in time. So what does that, this now mean? In terms of unlocking use cases, Randy, think about what it would take if somebody came to us and said, hey, we have this hive cluster we have this h cluster and this is our production cluster but we want to mirror it to let our data scientists just basically have a sandbox to play in i mean that's that's a huge a ton undertaking of money
1: to be able to get the same capacity without impacting production workflows. And we see that concern all the time. I've seen really expensive proprietary systems be completely cloned, licenses repurchased, resources reallocated, just to avoid the impact on the production workflow.
0: And so here, let's say we wanted to experiment, we clone it. Yep. We're not paying any more in storage. You're not duplicating we the data. Start up a warehouse. Yep. You've got access to it. You're not affecting production because... That's somewhere else. That's production compute. That's right. Exactly. Additionally, I can change my data on my clone. It won't affect you. Yes. It won't affect you in production. So that's another huge feature that I see that just it, it makes things that much easier and to do. And it comes out
1: with. of the box. If you're going to yeah. try to even attempt to retain the same resources but still just provide that uh, level of non-interference through code or through software, you're going to be spending a lot of time building something pretty fragile.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about caching now. Okay. And this is getting a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of the system.
1: And this is by far my most favorite piece of Snowflake caching and some of the metrics you just get out of the box to see what your legitimate query patterns are.
0: That's right. So let's say you're doing a new query and you're executing it for the first time. Yep. What's going to happen is that... You can click directly on your query, and you can look at the query planner, and it's going to show you exactly what occurred and how long, what percentage of that time was spent in what operation.
1: How much is it? Is IO? Is it compute right. transformation? Yes.
0: When you're doing your first query, typically your longest amount of time is getting data from the remote store, which is the object store beneath the compute that you're doing so what the first thing that's going to happen is the result set is going to be cached in the warehouse so this is important this is the first level of caching it's going to be cached in the warehouse Mm. so if you're doing a very large table scan that could be a sizable chunk of time right so that's something that you want to keep in the back of your mind on whether or not this is a warehouse you want to turn off or not because once you turn off that warehouse that cache is gone now the second level of cache is my personal favorite in a lot of organizations, you're making a lot of repetitive queries. There are guys pulling the same Tableau dashboards, the same reports, the same extracts. Now that's where the caching that happens in the, in the cloud, what their cloud services areas, they call it that's snowflake managed, snowflake owned. So if I make a query that shows me a dashboard and I shut down my warehouse and Randy, you make that exact same query, you pulled up the same dashboard. You're going to get the data and my warehouse is still off. Yeah, that's the coolest thing ever. Cause now I'm not being billed for that time. I'm not being billed. I'm not starting up a warehouse. I'm not doing anything. You've got the data just from that metadata cache. Yes. And to be honest, if you ever want to look into it, it uses foundation DB, that's actually what's behind that caching. It's the coolest thing if you ever want to dig into that. And if
1: you were to ever begin, say you've got a workflow that you know is mature and it's ready for this kind of optimization, you wanted to think, "Oh, you know, what are my caching options that are non-proprietary, that are not super expensive, that are tied for on-prem?" You're going to be looking at many, many months of investment with high comp people, really high competency people, uh, and in Snowflake, just with its base offerings and advantages, it becomes really compelling. But with this caching stuff just built into it, it is a no brainer. Uh, My favorite piece, I I can't tell you how many times I'm working with a client and they're optimizing the compute. They're spending a lot of time to look at advanced Spark features to make sure their compute's right. But when 80% of their time is just, it's pure IO. Like no matter what you do, the compute is not the limiting factor. Uh, and it would take a lot of time to figure that out after maybe investing too much in optimizing the compute. In Snowflake, with the caching and the profiling tools, you can see, look, this is an operation that's 80% IO. So if you want to change the performance, you're going to need to look at maybe change the way you store data, and maybe change the way it's read or how much needs to be read at once. Um, just making a more efficient version of your computation is not going to help you because the raw IO is still the same. Uh, right. These are hands down my favorite pieces of Snowflake, and these are the parts that are most interesting both to developers and subject matter experts.
0: Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, there's a lot of things that make this significantly more attractive than trying to roll your own. I think that's 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 pretty um, that's pretty apparent. Yeah. Now, one of the easy the easy things that I can see is onboarding access you and I, Randy, have both had to deal with putting BI on kind of your traditional data warehouses, your yeah. traditional, um, whether it be Hive, Impala, you name it. It It is not as straightforward as you would like it to be. Yeah. Now, Mike talked a little bit about it before, but you getting access in Tableau to Snowflake took five minutes, I think. Well,
2: I had to sign up for Tableau. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. that <laughs> was the sign, big yeah.
1: limiting factor. But once he had it... Um, and this is an advantage to Tableau. I could go on for years about Tableau, the ability to go in not knowing what you want. And it's so simple that you can explore and you start uncovering insights you didn't know about. Um, Often it's limited by your data warehouse and anyone who's tried to connect Tableau to Hive. I know even with LLAP or whatever service you have, it didn't work out because that's not what Hive's meant for. Hive is really workflow oriented and not for BI. Um, So then, I don't even want to get into all the different ways people try to work around that. But with Snowflake, out of the box, you are ready, you are BI ready. Yep. You're doing exploration, dashboard development, and deployment within within a day and answering the questions that you thought you didn't even know to ask. Uh, so that was the most exciting part to me of the Tableau integrations was that someone like Mike, you signed up, doesn't know doesn't know SQL, just has a general idea of the data and you're asking questions, you're doing scatter charts, bar charts, just like that.
0: Well, yeah, just to take you through the flow, just to take you through an entire Snowflake flow that we went through. Um, and this was for one of the Zero to Snowflake uh, workshops. workshops that yeah. we taught. So I found this data set, which was basically, I think it was 12 years of checkout data from the Seattle Public Library. Oh, I
1: love that data set. It's so awesome. So much to explore. Yeah.
0: So it was, I think around six gigabytes of data, not massive, but you know, an amount to play that with. you need to plan yeah. for
1: in an enterprise, yeah. that would be the kind of data you couldn't do in like Python or CSV or Excel. You would need a database yeah, for. It. You
0: need a database for that. So we went ahead and tossed it up to s three. It was CSV format. We tossed it up to s three, created an external stage, brought it over, brought over the dictionary that told us what these books actually were. And it was, I mean, that process was, Probably to bring the data over to put it in, we're talking 15 minutes.
1: And that was maybe the third data set we tried of that capacity. It was so easy to do. We tried one that was about like water quality, I think, and it was kind of boring. So we just moved it on the next one and the right. next one. Like this was like the third or fourth data set we tried because it was more interesting.
0: Right. And then we hooked up Tableau to it and then we started playing. Like it was immediate playtime. It was just right away. What days do you check out books the most? What type of books do you check out at what time of day? What's the most popular? Yeah. Who's
1: the top author?
2: Right. But this, Yeah. So this goes back to, you know, as we were doing that, you remember that there were a couple of things that needed to be adjusted, you know, the dates and times. And there was a couple of changes to make. And this goes back to, you know, the thing I said earlier is that I did those changes. I did that essentially using oh, yeah. some simple transformations. Right away, you, you know, saw, built in. Right, it wasn't. I yes. didn't need to go get someone to help me as a business user. I. It was simple stuff that I was familiar with. I mean, you know, sort of like coming from that Excel background. Things I knew how to do, and I did them in the way that was familiar to me. Yes. And you know, oftentimes what you find when I ask a uh, support team, you know, I go to the ITBS and I say, I want to do this analysis. I don't really know where I'm going to end up. I know where I'm starting on the journey, and I may know the first couple of steps, but being able to go into this with Tableau and really dig in and say, okay, I wanted to do a bubble plot first. I did the bubble plot. I'm like, well, this is stupid. It doesn't give me what I want out of it. No, I need to change it and to be able to just easily go through. To be fair, at one
0: point, Mike was annoying us using our shared uh, our shared warehouse. <laughs> we had to up uh, his so uh, cluster size. We went ahead and upped <laughs> his cluster size and we get, we ended up on our own warehouse because well, he was annoying us. Well, but yeah, <laughs> The
1: things you asked, Mike, I remember specifically that you said, you know, dates are fine, but I really am interested in day of the week analysis. Yeah. And you were able, without tons of technical background, to just quick Google. Like, how do I go from date to day of the week? Yeah. Like a string value. And you were able to get that in an instant just from the Snowflake documentation. And right away, you were able to decide, you know what, Sundays... They're dead days. And without any additional information, you came to the conclusion, you know, Sundays might have limited hours in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, these are the kind of insights that if you're applying to an actual business use case that are going to save you money. They change yeah. behavior right away.
2: And on the backside, for me, you know, being on my own warehouse, instead of having to worry, I didn't have to worry about costs because I just set it up to say, okay, I want to start with a small and I want to have at maximum four smalls and you know, and it was just and so I know that. If I really want to push it, it'll respond as fast as I'm sort of willing also, to it was pay for. Also with my credit card, so <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> we do sometimes I was, use our own. <laughs> I was still in free credits at that point, uh, but but fundamentally, I don't have to worry about. It. I know, yeah, I'm going to pay for a small or I know I'm going to pay for some minimum if I left the warehouse running, but it also gives you the flexibility from a scale, you know, easy to set up and administer. From my standpoint, I can set a min max, and I know then therefore. I'm not going to have to wait forever. I can actually, yeah. the system will scale up and scale down uh, to respond to but what that, I'm doing. So
0: one of the things I do want to point out. So I'm going to talk a little bit about warehouse scaling and how that works right now. Sure. So there are auto suspend, auto resume features. Super awesome. So in that case, what happens is after a period of inactivity, it auto suspends. It's off. I don't pay for it anymore. Now I'm just paying for the storage, the, the data below it. Auto resume. I don't have to go in there and say, oh, I forgot to turn on my warehouse. Let me go in there and turn on my warehouse. And then I'm going to actually... St-. No. Auto-resume is as soon as it picks up that there's a query coming in, it turns itself back on. Now, one of the things I do want to point out, this is not like when we say we're going to turn on a warehouse, you're going to wait, you know, go make a sandwich, get a cup of coffee. It's instant on. It's I mean, on. It's milliseconds. If you spun up of, an EC2, on.
1: that's what it's going on. It's that same kind of concept. If but even then, on. it's faster than EC2. Yep. It,
0: it is off on. I mean, it is fast so the auto suspend auto resume is quite awesome from that perspective now there's also the concept of the vertical versus horizontal scalability so you scale vertically for query speed right so when i go from an xs to an xxl what that means is i need this query to run faster because if I take an XS and I put eight XSs on there, mm-hmm. that's not going to make my query run any faster. Yep. All that's going to let me do is make sure that when I have 1,500 users coming in all at the same time, it's probably a bad idea to have 1,500 users <laughs> just going on an XS, by the way. But anyway, when I have 1,500 users coming in all the time, I can scale up now from you know 1 up to X, whatever I set my maximum to be. So there is a concept of scaling out versus scaling up. And that's all configurable. And the nice thing is there is one API to Snowflake. It's a SQL API.
1: You control, That's the other great thing, yeah. That if you know SQL, you can both access your data and configure your warehouse credentials. Your, I'm sorry, just your configuration. You,
0: you, users. Yep. Auto-suspend, auto-resume, create your warehouses. all of that SQL. And if you ever get confused, the thing I like is for every operation you do via the UI... It always says show SQL. So you can always just copy that down, put it into a workbook you automate and automate it. the whole thing. Yes. Right. Which is super awesome. So the other thing I wanted to talk about briefly is Snow Alert, which mm. is an open source project that is coming out of the Snowflake team. Yep. So this started as a security analytics package. What it is really, it's a rules engine. That runs in the background it's got this sam ui that they've got a little ui where you can create the rules and you can create policies but essentially what it is it's a docker container that runs rules on the database and you specify a cron job to kick off this this docker container and it runs you could run this in kubernetes you could run this in fargate you could just run it on a machine anywhere and run with a, docker a cron container. right yeah. so I was working with one of our other hash mappers, Ed Fraun, who's going to come on the podcast one day, and we're going to we got to have him into, on, especially uh, for
1: Snowflake. We should have had him yeah. on today. He's our expert
0: when we deep dive into uh, Snow Alert. But the interesting thing about Snow Alert is, even though it's really awesome to do security things, yeah, there's so much more interesting stuff you can do with it. It's a rules engine, yeah. So now you're looking at this thing where we can say, okay. I want to find out if a user is running a query that takes longer than 10 seconds. Guess what? Snowflake stores the metadata about queries in a table that you can access. So that means now I know which users are taking up the most time. Do they need a bigger warehouse? Are most of my users asking for things that are out of the awesome query? Yeah. I can automatically find out if I've had snowpipe errors. Great. I can pull that from a log. I can so one of the interesting things that Ed and I did was we hooked up. We run a managed service on AWS. We hooked up our CloudTrail logs using uh, one of the tools that we talked about earlier, Aluma, yeah, to pull in the data via from CloudTrail via JSON. Yep. Load it into Snowflake, and we didn't really talk about this, but Snowflake has native JSON capabilities. Oh my so, gosh! It's the most one yeah. of the
1: most fun. It's like a hybrid between your kind of SQL and NoSQL is that you're able to access these fields dynamically. Right,
0: it's a semi-structured data. So all we were able to do is load this data as a variant, and then from that, we can create a view on top of it, and now we can query who accessed what, who's changing the ACLs on our S3, who got declined, who put in an invalid password. So from a security perspective, for companies that have a multi-cloud strategy and they want to have a single dashboard and they're already using Snowflake, this is an easy, easy thing to do load those logs up, now you have a multi-cloud security strategy basically out of the box with alerts. And the coolest thing was it automatically, so Snow Alert will automatically create JIRA tickets. Yeah. So, you know, work would have to be done if you wanted to integrate it with, say, for example, ServiceNow or something else. But it's open source. Feel free to get in there, do some work. But it is really interesting, the opportunity that that affords you, when you're looking to just have kind of a simple rules engine to sit on top of your data warehouse, you could start doing automated data quality checks. You could start doing a whole bunch of different things. And again, cloud-based, you just, don't have to stand up a lot of infrastructure. You just easy to get going.
1: Contextualize, a, contextualize a little bit of this, how long did that take you to get the core flow set up?
0: I So we already had the cloud trail. Yeah, basically set up the IAM profile in AWS to make sure that Aluma could access the S3 bucket. Yeah, we had Aluma go ahead and create the tables for us, and then we created the view. And what we're looking at there is and and Ed had to do a little stuff with Aluma to make sure it loaded it as a variant, which means that we can actually flatten the JSON. Yep. Um, but I think end to end forty five minutes.
1: Forty five minutes, and and I recall when you guys were starting to work on this that it was um. You know, we were interested in Snowflake, Snow Alert was something kind of new. You you were looking for use cases, and you thought, you know, maybe maybe we'll throw this data in there. Let's see what it takes. And it was so fast to do, and you got so quickly from, I don't really know what to do with this data, to actual useful workflows, not just the 45 minutes of uh, the setup, but from the actual trying of different alerts to actual production ready alerting that connected with our workflows and informed us on what to do differently for this managed service I mean you were inside of a day
0: yeah yeah
1: and the the money up front right away that you wouldn't i mean you guys didn't spend ten thousand dollars just to get an initial license and a trial like nope
0: we just did it and exactly it, we did it within free credits so I mean we've been pretty hot on snowflake for basically the podcast but there are some downsides I mean like we okay. talked about, For the majority of use cases, the automatic partitioning and clustering that they're going to do is it works well. Um, You can define your own indices and things like that. It's going to work a little different than you expect. Uh, Similarly, stored procedures. We know that they're coming out. They're not out yet. Yep. Um, Scheduling as well. Scheduling.
1: That uh, you would still need external tools to be able to do the same kind of scheduling flexibility that you would be used to in maybe an on-prem solution.
0: Right. So there are a couple of things, but to be honest, for the 90% use case of guys who are just trying to build a data warehouse, you're going to be much farther ahead, much quicker using something like Snowflake uh, versus having to worry about setting all this stuff up on prem.
1: I would say that the learnings that you are eligible to gain for almost no expenditure just for uploading into Snowflake and putting it in front of a mic just to see what they think. You're at that stage so much faster, weeks or months sooner than you would originally be. And those insights are still valid, even though you know, maybe Snowflake, the flexibility you need, it's not going to work. The cloud itself is not good for you. But you put up a test case, maybe a, a month's worth of data, and maybe anonymize it if you're worried about proprietary stuff in the cloud. I know big, big companies sometimes are. And you put it in front of a user, the insights that you get from that are worth the what is it $100 you would spend 200 i mean
0: yeah i mean it's it's maybe nothing maybe so free. one thing one thing i i do want to mention again is it is a cloud-based data warehouse mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you already have to have a cloud strategy you can snowflake is an independent service it's yep. not tied to aws or azure you can sign up for it independently you can use internal stages you can use snow cli you, you can have use no, your own etl you think about the cloud so you can get started. It is a good stepping stone to get into these other things. Like you mentioned Databricks, Lambda, you know, so on and so and forth. And if
1: you're even just curious about it, I know a lot of people who do a data lake and they don't have a full consumption strategy played out. Maybe they're going to look at MuleSoft. Maybe they're going to look at building their own APIs on their side. Lambda, I mean, you throw a little stuff into Snowflake, do some transforms, make it available through through some of the connectors that are already built into Lambda. Or uh, Azure, they have their functions. Yeah. You can do that. And even if you don't go full production with that API, you can do API development and fail really quickly there without having built a full, like, fault-tolerant, multi-tenancy, like, uh, API. It's
0: a a great stepping stone. For sure. And then I'll end on, for those who are concerned about, you know, geo-redundancy and things like that, Snowflake is rolling out kind of copy so you can create live live masters if you or live live copies of the data if you wanted to maybe some
1: fallback features right yep
0: but again remember it's leveraging the cloud so it's across availability zones anyway Mm -hmm. those are planned out so that they could withstand disasters but for regulatory reasons internal policies a lot of companies want to have this geo-redundant replication so that is something that you can do as well and that that is a fairly recent-ish i mean this is all moving very fast but it is a fairly recent-ish development so
1: so i, I would kind of land maybe on saying that snowflake has a ton of benefits it's not dramatically different uh usability wise from the thing and i think that's that's the key you thing. might be using so it's not like there's a huge like spark if you don't have any spark devs you're all sql it could take a long time for anyone to do anything useful this is the same kind of workflow the same kind of interfacing that you're used to maybe a couple benefits maybe a few drawbacks. Uh, and if you're in an enterprise environment that's traditionally been a little shy of the cloud, I'm willing to bet you have Azure credits just from your agreements with Microsoft that will more than pay for your experimentation.
0: Right. So, And just to be clear, you can't use the Azure credits for Snowflake. Oh, okay. got <laughs> uh, Okay. But overall, it's something that needs to be looked at if, if you're having existing problems or you have existing scalability issues, it's definitely something to look at. So so how was the beer guys?
1: Mine was phenomenal. That, that popping, that is a fantastic, I would say that's a game night beer. If you're having some friends over, play a little risk, play a little cards against humanity, have this beer, share it. It's not too challenging. It's not like a sour beer or anything like that, Uh, but it is a little different from the traditional, just IPA you'd be having normally. Yeah.
2: No, the stout is holding up. I still have it was a, a fairly large bottle, so I still have quite a bit left. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it. It's, like I said, it continues to be smooth and uh, easy to drink. Classic. I'm not gonna lie.
0: I'm sweating thanks to this old <laughs> engine oil. This is a <laughs> you have heavy, an aggressive beer, heavy beer, but it's it's still tasty. And I think I'm gonna take a nap now for sure. All right, very good. All right. Well, thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks.